Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. It's page 1001 in the Pew Bibles there. We're actually going to pick up right where I left off uh, so many months ago, um, just as it was proper and right and good and fitting for me to begin that study in the book of Hebrews that many, many months ago, it is equally good and right and fitting and proper for us to pick up right where I left off. And we're going to deal with that word a lot today. It is fitting. It's good. It's right. It's proper. I love that word because that tells us something about God. We, we have a God who is not afraid of our questions, right? A God who recognizes that, that there are things in life because of our brokenness, because of our sin, because of, of who we are and our confusion and, and our lack of understanding, that it is not natural for us to look out at the world around us and think that everything that happens is fitting. That doesn't seem fitting to us, right? It's confusing. We wonder why. But yet God welcomes those questions. He's, he's unlike our earthly parents who get bothered by the thousand why questions that we as kids ask every day, never God. God welcomes those. He wants you to ask those questions. And so if, if you've ever wondered, why did God do it this way? Why does God communicate himself to his people through his word? Why, why would he determine that we should come to know him or come to love him or come to worship him in particular ways? Or why did he, he save us in this way? He welcomes those questions and he answers those questions in his word. It was fitting for God to order the world the way that he did. It was fitting for God to save rebellious sinners as he did. It was fitting for God to establish sound doctrine, to organize the church, to organize ordinances of worship as he did. It was fitting for God to communicate himself as he did. It is fitting for God to offer us the hope of eternal glory as he did. All of it is fitting. And here's where it gets real for us today. That goodness, that rightness, that proper, suitable, appropriate fitting even includes our shame and suffering. It includes that question, why is my life this way? How is this fitting? See, we live in a broken world, a world that is full of sin and pain and disgrace, and that is the world that the Son of God entered into. That is the world that he came to redeem. He experienced suffering and shame because of our sin so that we might be saved, so that we might be made fitting and proper and good and right and acceptable and pleasing before God. If you're experiencing suffering and shame this morning, I want you to know that you are in a good place today. You see, though we still live in a fallen world where sin and suffering and shame affect us, right? When, when we understand how it fits within God's great plan of redemption, there is life. We find hope and peace and joy in believing. That is what God offers to us this morning, that it is fitting that that hurt or that shame, it has its place. But even more than that, 
It has a cure. There is hope. There is relief. There is freedom if we establish our lives upon a sure foundation. And Hebrews is all about our one true and sure foundation, the supremacy of Christ. Friends, it is only when we build our life upon Him, not on other things, that that life begins to make sense to us. We see how it all fits together, even our suffering and shame. And so, what we're going to see this morning from our time together in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, is that because of our superior foundation, there is purpose in suffering and freedom from shame. Now, um, like I, has been my trend, I'm just going to be breaking that statement down into three parts this morning. And so first, because of our superior foundation. Now, I know that it has been a while since we have looked at the book of Hebrews together, and so I want to take about 15 minutes to walk us through the foundation that has previously been established so far, because the foundation of Hebrews is the only foundation for salvation. And so I want to begin by reading in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And we've got to stop right there and deal with that because this is a first foundational cornerstone that God lays for us. God has given us His superior word. He has spoken to us by His Son. And He lays that out with three comparative ideas, right? You see them there, right? Long ago, God spoke. We get that. Maybe we accept that. But He also says, in these last days, God also spoke. What are these last days? Well, that's the time from Jesus' resurrection and ascension to glory until His future return when He comes again. So you know what that means? I mean, it's 2,000 years ago until Jesus comes back again. The day that you and I live in each and every day, God has spoken. God's speaking. Okay, let's keep going. Well, second comparative idea, right? God spoke long ago at many times and in many ways by the prophets, right? He spoke, well, I'm skipping ahead, to our fathers, right? And we have benefited from all of that. We get to go back and look and see all of the ways that God has spoken to our fathers, right? But that's contrasted that in these last days, he has spoken to us. Okay, God, how? How on earth have you spoken? Are we, are we listening for some audible word, Right? Well, he says, again, in the third comparative idea, long ago at many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. And we benefit from that. We get to read that. We get to rejoice in that. God still speaks to us through that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Do you want to know whether or not God is speaking to you? The answer is yes. And how? How is God speaking to you? God has spoken to you by his Son, we have received this superior word. The passage goes on. We pick right back up in in verse 2 there with the fact that this one and only Son, according to verse 2, has a superior glory, and that God the Father has appointed His Son heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. 
And this sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe. Guys, get that. The universe by the word of his power. And then after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Glory in this I mean, you can't see it because it's, it's kind of tucked in in this English paragraph, right? We can't unpack it. But deep within there, there's a Hebrew literary device called a chiasm that splits this up into three parts, right? It focuses on his nature, it focuses on his work, and it focuses on his status. And the central one, the most important one that we need to get is his nature. That he is the radiance of the glory of God. A glory that God will not give to another, right? If God will not give that glory to another and he's the radiance of the glory of God, what does that mean? He's the exact imprint of his nature. Well, if the very nature of God is God, then what is the very nature of the exact imprint of his nature? It's God, right? And so what we have here is God of very God. That is the nature of the Son. It moves on, right, working its way out to focus on his work, that he can do what only God can do. Who but God and God alone can create the world? Who but God and God alone can uphold the universe by the word of his power? Who but God and God alone can make purification for sin? And it's only when we get those two parts, his nature and his work right, that we can begin to understand what he means when he says, well, he was appointed heir of all things, or, or that he has become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is far more excellent than theirs. It's not that he became something that he was not. No, to inherit the name of God, for him to be able to do that means that that name was his by right of who he always was and by what only he can do, right? Only God can bear the name of God, You and I, we cannot bear the name of God. Only God can do that, right? And having become as much superior to to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, now we can understand what what he's just showing here is that his superiority over them, right? He's showing his greatness and his glory. And because of that, we can rest in that second foundation stone in his superior glory. Verses 4 through 14 go on to focus on how he is superior to angels. Though Jesus is called a son of God, the son of God, don't think that that makes him something less than God or that that puts him on the level of angels who are sometimes referred to as sons of God. He is qualitatively different. Now the whole point of this passage is to say that his unique sonship, right, focus on that. The unique son of God sits enthroned over all until all of his enemies are defeated. I mean, just look at how it contrasts the Son from angels from God's Word. Let's pick up in verse 5. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. Deuteronomy 32. Now of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire, Psalm 104. But of the Son, he says, now get this, of the Son, he says, 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 45, Isaiah 61. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And again, it's saying this of the sun, right? Right? You, Lord, have laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you, the sun, are the same, and your years will have no end. Psalm 102. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet? Psalm 110. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who, to, who are to inherit salvation? You see, having become as much superior to the angels is not about his nature, but about his unique sonship. Because God says, let all of the angels worship him. Angels, they're like winds or, or flames of fire, but the divine son sits enthroned forever. And even more so, the Son is seated at the right hand of God while angels are ministering until all his enemies are defeated. And so there you have the foundation stones, which, which they've laid so far in chapter 1. The superior word, the superior glory, he's superior to angels. Is it now starting to make more sense why we love and worship him as we do? Now, Chapter 1 has been nothing but theology. There has not been one point of application. There's not been one statement say, okay, now in light of that, you need to do this, right? Now, there's inferences we can draw, right? Behold this, know this, believe this, listen to this, see this, receive this, rest in this. But it's only when we come to chapter 2 that we're given the first of five warnings that are presented in the book of Hebrews, right? <clears throat> says, don't neglect this superior salvation. We're told to safeguard it. We're, we're warned of the inability to escape if we are to cast aside our only glorious hope, and we are encouraged to receive it from God's confirmation of it. It reads, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God himself also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, so is Hebrews telling us we can lose our salvation? No. Not at all, right? What we have here is a warning which serves as the very means that God gives believers for their salvation. Right? You got to get the purpose of warnings, right? Uh, I, I quoted this before when I preached on it a while back, but it's worth quoting again here. Charles Spurgeon describes it this way. God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces, I think that I've said that to my kids before, right? And so he goes on to say, what does the child do? The child says, Father, keep me. 
Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. The warning leads the believer to greater dependence upon God, to a holy fear and caution because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. So it is with this warning. If we neglect so great a salvation, there is no escape. But God intends this warning to be a means of drawing us into greater dependence, into greater joy and greater wonder and greater hope and greater fear and greater love for our superior salvation. And knowing just how great this salvation is makes us willing to submit ourselves to a superior subjection. Because the superior man, Jesus, is a superior master who offers us a superior future. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. What does that mean? God has subjected the world to Jesus. It has been testified somewhere in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything into subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing, nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but, and I love this, I love this, we see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the perfect man who lived the life that we cannot. He fulfilled the very purpose for which man was created, according to Psalm 8. And not only that, he died for the sin of man and rose from the grave so that mankind could be restored to our original purpose, the very reason for which we were created to live. He makes that possible through his death and resurrection. He defeated our earthly masters. As much as we don't think we have earthly masters, guess what? Sin, death, the devil, Scripture says they all have Lord over us, right? He defeated those and established himself as a superior master, not in order to lord it over it, but because of he loves us and he redeemed us and he is bringing us into his glory. So we have a superior future, one that's far better than any future that we could carve out for ourselves. And though we do not now see everything in subjection to him, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels so that he might taste death for everyone. And because of that, we might share in his glory. And that's the foundation that Hebrews has laid for us so far. Five stones, if you will. A superior word, a superior glory. He's superior to angels. It's a superior salvation and a superior subjection. That's where we've gone so far. So in 15 minutes, I've just summarized what I unpacked over more than four hours in five sermons way back in July. 
So the question always becomes, well, Chad, if you can do that, a chapter and a half in 15 minutes, why don't you do that all the time? Well, guys, it's because the Word of God is this superior Word that is worthy of meditation and honor. It is worthy on going to over and over again, looking deeply, unpacking. And guys, I hope you know that what I deliver to you on Sunday, no matter how long I might go, is only the cliff notes. It's only the smallest taste, the smallest sampling of what I have been chewing over or feasting on all week long. And I had to walk away from the table because I was getting fat and I couldn't finish it. That's why we do what we do. But since it's been a while, I needed to lay that foundation for us again. I didn't want to just neglect it and walk on or just say, hey, go back and listen to the sermons, though I would encourage you to do that. But wanted to set that foundation before us before we moved ahead. Because the foundation of Hebrews is the only foundation for salvation. And so the passage we're going to look at for the remainder of our time, verses 10 through 13, as well as the rest of chapter 2, gives reason why Jesus tasted death for everyone in verse 9. Why it was fitting, why it was necessary that he should suffer and die. Let's pick back up here in verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You see, it is fitting. You know, Christianity is confusing. It is. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd think it's confusing too. I still think it's confusing sometimes, right? It doesn't make sense to us right? We're limited in our understanding. We don't know why. It's not natural to us. But everything that God does is good and right and proper. It is appropriate. It is necessary. It is according to God's glorious design. That word fitting tells us that there is a purpose and there is an order to absolutely everything. The God who made all things, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, right? That means that he is the the source, the agent, and the goal of all creation, all of life, yours as well. It is by him and for him. He has planned and he has purposed it this way. And it fits all together. We might not see how right now, but it all fits together. He is in this process of building a dwelling place for himself in and through and for us. Every single stone Every instance, every moment fitting together perfectly according to his design in order to establish this. And that fitting includes suffering. It includes pain and heartache and loss and disgrace. 
It includes shame. Friends, let's keep in mind that the author of Hebrews is writing to an audience that's somewhat similar to the audience that we saw in the book of James. We just finished up. A bunch of Jewish Christians who are experiencing suffering. They're hurt. They're confused. They want to be faithful, but they don't understand why. They're asking that question, why? Why, God, why? Why this way? Right? Why is this happening? And so what they're doing is they're taking their eyes off of Christ and all the glories that have been awaiting them, and they're placing them down on their present circumstances. Right? They've lost sight of Jesus in the midst of it all. They want to understand, right? They, they want to know, why was it even necessary that the Christ, the Son of God, need suffer and die? And if He suffered and died for us, then why is it necessary in light of His victory, right? In light of His resurrection and His ascension to glory, that His people, His children, must also face suffering and death. I mean, if He won, why isn't this whole thing over? They're wondering why. And I think we can relate to that, right? I wonder if any of you are, are experiencing loss this morning. Think about Tiffany Jackson. Her dad recently passed away. I wonder if any of you are, are just feeling the effects of, of cancer or disease. Are any of you fighting just deep sadness or depression or, or disappointments? Have you been hurt by the sins of others? Or are you just kind of plagued with this, this notion, plagued with, with the idea of, of the evil that you see existing in the world around us? It's troubling. Are any of you wondering why? Why, God, why? Again, friends, take comfort in the fact that God has to say to us this morning, listen, it is fitting. Right? God that welcomes our questions is telling us from his word this morning, it's fitting. He knows of our confusion. He knows of our doubts. He knows of all of the things we wonder about and, and that don't come natural to us. And he says to us, it is fitting. And what is fitting? It is fitting that the founder of our salvation should suffer, that he should taste death for everyone. Jesus is the founder of our salvation, meaning that he is the origin. He is the one who initiates. He is the one that institutes. He is the one that establishes our salvation. He is the only one who can do that. And apart from his willing sacrifice, apart from his perfect obedience, even in humiliation and pain and death, there would be no possibility of our being redeemed or restored or forgiven by God. It was fitting that he should suffer so that we might be saved. And apart from it, because he is the only founder of our salvation, there is no hope. 
His death for sin is the only foundation for our salvation. Our brokenness cannot be restored. We cannot be saved without it. Friends, it was fitting, it was necessary that the founder of our salvation should suffer and die in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Apart from that foundation, experiencing that suffering and death, there is no coming to glory. That notion of glory, what is he talking about? Glory, it's such a weird concept to even try to chew on. Well, guys, you know that nagging sensation in your heart just kind of gets you right in the gut, like that you know that the world is broken and that it's not right? That, that ache that's in your heart that says it was not fitting, it's not fitting for the world to be this way? Do you know that was put there by God? That was put there by God so that you would long for glory. So that you would long for a world that is unbroken, where God can dwell with his people in perfect love and trust and intimacy, a world where sin and pain and loss and death and shame are no more. That is the glory that our founder instituted by his suffering. That is the salvation that he offers. That is the glory that he is bringing many sons and daughters into. There is nothing else that you could ever build your life upon. No no glory, no personal success, no relationship, no family, no pleasure that could could compare to this, the founder and only hope of our salvation offers us this superior foundation, the guarantee that through his suffering, death, and resurrection, he will bring you to glory. That glory that your soul has ached for your entire life. Are you going to neglect that? Are you going to dismiss that? Just disregard that? Say, you know what? I'd rather go along and make mud pies in the slums because I cannot fathom a holiday by the beach. Some people will. Not everyone will be brought to glory because it says right there, many sons and daughters will come to glory. Not all of them. Many. Are you willing to exchange eternal perfect glory for temporary, trite, earthly satisfactions? What are you going to build your life upon? I encourage you and I, I implore you to build it upon this superior foundation. Because it's only when we build our life upon God's purposes in Christ that we can begin to make sense of suffering and shame. Because of this superior foundation, second, there is purpose in suffering. Again, look at verse 10. It says, It was fitting that God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, what, what on earth does that mean? Does that mean that there was a time when Jesus wasn't perfect and then he had to become perfect? Is this moral integrity? Is this moral perfection in question here? No. 
Because Hebrews, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, upholds the sinlessness of Christ. For example, chapter 4, verse 15, he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Chapter 7, verse 26, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Chapter 9, verse 14, he is without blemish. Now, this has nothing to do with moral perfection. So what does it mean that the Son was made perfect through suffering? Well, to answer that, we, we want to look again at that word founder. He's the founder of our salvation. You see, that word not only means origin, it not only means initiator, institutor of our salvation, it also means pioneer or guide or pathfinder. He is the pioneer of our salvation. He is the one who blazed the trail for us, a trail that is cut through all the darkness and despair, all of the sin and misery, all of the calamity and hardship, through all of the pain and humiliation, through all of the shame and death that exists in order to establish our salvation. And it was fitting that he, like a good and faithful older brother, blazed that trail first. He is the one that put himself at risk. He is the one that went first in order to bring us safely to the end, to bring us safely home. And friends, this is big. And I need you to get this, right? Because Jesus never asks us to do something that he did not do first and did not do to its fullest. He is not some, some snotty, self-righteous king sitting up there commanding us to do what he could never do or, or never would attempt to do, but one who has done it first and done it to its fullest. You see, here's the thing. When, when we experience suffering, we do so as imperfect sinners who have been born into a sinful world. Now, some of our suffering is due to our own sin, due to our own error, due to our own mistakes. We all get this, right? I've done some stupid things and I have paid dearly for them, right? And also, there's a lot of our suffering that it, that's that's the byproduct of just living in a world that is broken, right? And so we suffer as sinners, but not Jesus. The eternal Son of God has always been and will ever be perfect, eternally begotten, not made, existing in heavenly glory. And he willingly took on flesh, leaving that glory behind in order to enter into this broken world, suffering not as a sinner, but as the perfect sinless man, not only for his sin, because he didn't have any, but for the sins of many, in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Guys, are you tracking me with me on this? Because it's big, all right? Because he didn't have to do that, right? He could have left us in our shame, left us in our sin, left us in a misery, and that would have been fine. All of the brokenness and suffering that you and I are experiencing is owing to sin. The fact that we sin, others sin, the fact that we live in a sinful world, it's a natural consequence of sin. You and I ought to expect suffering because we live in a broken world. We are broken, but the unbroken one entered into this brokenness. 
entered into our broken world. And through the experience of his suffering, he is fixing, he is restoring, he is perfecting that which was born broken. And he did that first, and he did that to its fullest. There is no amount of suffering that you experience. There's no loss, there's no shame, there's no abandonment that he cannot identify completely with. Have you ever been betrayed by someone who professed to love you? The sinless Son of God was betrayed to death on a cross. Did your mom or dad run off and leave you? Friends, in taking on sin, Jesus was forsaken by his heavenly Father. He was tempted in suffering beyond what you and I are capable of because you know what? When we're tempted as sufferers who are broken, we sin, but not him. He bore the entire weight of that temptation in the midst of his suffering and his pain, all of the cruelty, all of the shame, all of the sorrow and misery, and not just for himself, but for many sons and daughters of glory. And yet he did so without sin. And that, my friends, is what it means that he was made perfect through suffering. It's not that he wasn't perfect and then he became perfect, but that he learned obedience. According to chapter 5, verse 8, there is a testedness to his perfection. Now, I could grab a piece of, of metal and show it, hang it up here and say, you know what, that piece of metal is bulletproof. The first time you shoot a gun and like it blows a hole straight through it, you know, that's not true. That's what we are, guys. We are not perfect. When we are tested, we are found wanting, but not Jesus. He was tested completely and proven sinless, proven perfect. Suffered fully as a man, succeeded in all of the ways that you and I have failed. And so he and he alone is qualified to be the founder of our salvation. He and he alone is qualified to be our great, our noble, our perfect high priest. He and he alone is our faithful older brother who blazed the trail for our salvation so that many sons and daughters might enter into glory. And he did that perfectly through suffering. And friends, if that is true of him, who promised his disciples that they too would have to bear their own crosses as well, then the purpose of his suffering is the purpose of ours. You see, in our suffering, we are being identified with and united to the founder of our salvation. In our suffering for him, we learn more of his great love for us. In our suffering, God is preparing us for glory. In our suffering in faith, we are representing Christ to and in the midst of a broken world. In our suffering, God is in the process of making us perfect. 
testing us, sanctifying us, leading us to dependence upon him, training us to renounce ungodliness. Through suffering, he is bringing us to glory. Friends, I I may not know exactly what you're experiencing today, the suffering that you may even right now at this moment be enduring. I may not know how hard it is or how much hurt you feel, but I do know this, that because of our superior foundation, it is not without purpose. If there is anything that God has shown me over the last seven months, said no matter what the cause of pain or hurt may be, it is not without purpose. Now that won't make the pain less painful, but it does make it hopeful. It won't make you immune, but it is providing the cure. It doesn't promise you that life will be easy, but it guarantees he will give you the grace to persevere. And as you endure with each passing day, you will grow to see that his mercy really is new every morning, that your joy will return. And in the end of it all, in the end of it all, it's glory, pure, holy, radiant glory, glory that you can't even imagine. Everything that you were ever meant to be perfected by and for and with the founder of your salvation forevermore. You may not feel that now. You may not be able to see that now, but it's worth it. I promise you that no matter what suffering you may have to endure, and believe me, I don't say that lightly, it is worth it. And so because of our superior foundation, there is purpose in our suffering, and third, freedom from our shame. Verse 11 through 13 give another reason why it was fitting for Jesus to taste death for everyone, why it was fitting that the founder of our salvation should be made perfect through suffering. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. And that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, the one who sanctifies here is Jesus. The one, those who are sanctified <clears throat> are those who live by faith in Jesus. Sanctified, it's a big, fancy biblical word. just means made holy, made pure, made acceptable before God. And note what it says here. Jesus is the one who makes us holy before God. Jesus sanctifies, right? We, through faith in Christ, are those who are made holy before God. 
That means that you don't make yourself right before God. Right? You can't do enough to fix that. You don't, you can't. Because here's the thing, brokenness can't fix brokenness. Brokenness can empathize, but only the unbroken one can fix what is broken. You cannot sanctify yourself. You must be sanctified by Jesus. And so friends, when we gather together, right, it is to help us to bring one another in communion with the one who sanctifies us, right? When we gather together, we sing and we sit under the word. It's so that we can come face to face with the unbroken one who will fix our brokenness. Not because we think that in doing that activity and showing up and singing the songs and putting in our time and checking off our list that we are fixing ourselves. I've got to say that because we are so prone to go the other way. We are here to bring us and to help point one another, help each other to fix our eyes on Jesus. To come into communion with him. Verse 11 goes on to say that, that we and Jesus all have one origin. Now that word origin is supplied it's a rather unfortunate word because when, often when we hear the word origin, we think about beginning, as in creation. Is this saying that we have one creator and Jesus has one creator? By no means, right? No, the literal translation here is the sanctifying one and those who are sanctified are all from one. Well, from one what, right? One glorious plan of salvation that is perfectly fitting whereby we are sanctified, made one, brought to glory, certainly. But there's more than that. I mean, just look at the context. It says, Jesus and all those who are sanctified through him are of one family. Many sons and daughters to glory, right? That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, Because we are of one family. If you are in Christ, you are a brother or a sister. And we are that family. We have one father who made us and who has adopted us. Our older brother died and rose again so that we might be forever restored into this glorious family. Do you see one another as family? Now, the author of Hebrews supports this with a quote from Psalm 22. You guys familiar with Psalm 22? Jesus quoted it from the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for 21 verses, Psalm 22 gives a prophetic foretelling, get this, from the mouth of David, 1,000 years before Jesus was born of Jesus' suffering and death, right? It goes on, like just in, in, in verses 16 through 18, it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Does that blow your mind? 
that a thousand years before Jesus ever existed, his great, 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 whatever grandfather said this. <clears throat> but in beginning, in, 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 back in Psalm 22, beginning in verse 22, which is what's quoted here, okay? And throughout the rest of the psalm, it, begin, it shifts. It, it starts praising God for the future glory and restoration of God's people. So first 21 verses, all about the suffering, right? Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of it, the second half of it, is all about this future glory of God's family. And it uses words like brothers, congregation, offspring, the families of all nations being brought together into one family to worship God. It speaks of a future posterity of the coming generation serving God and proclaiming his righteousness to people yet unborn from throughout the earth. And so you know what that means? It's talking about us. You're in that song. David, Jesus, you. Everybody that has existed in between, everybody that yet unborn, because it goes on to say even those who are yet unborn, who we're going to go and proclaim the glory, the righteousness, and the kingdom of God to them. Future generations, all in there. The founder of our salvation, who experienced the forsaking of our father for sin, died and rose in order to lead his multi-ethnic, multi-generational brothers and sisters into a restored relationship of praise, trust, honor, and glory toward our great heavenly father. Our older brother has sacrificed himself in order to reunite our eternal family in worship to God. That's what that psalm is about. You see how it connects with Jesus' suffering and us and the subsequent glories. The other quote in verse 13 is from Isaiah 8, and it does the same. Though it, it seemed as though in the midst of all of his suffering and all of his shame that his father's face was hidden from him, right? That's the context of Isaiah 8. The author is connecting it to Jesus' suffering, and as he endured the cross and despised the shame, he actively chose, as it says in verse 13, to put his trust in God, and the result, the consequence, the product of his faithfulness through suffering and shame is behold, not just him, but all the children that God has given him would put their trust in God in the midst of their suffering and their shame too. That's how the author of Hebrews connects Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, not just to the suffering and shame of Jesus, but to the children of God as well. Jesus trusted God in the midst of all of his suffering, all of his shame, and the result was glory, not just for himself, but for us who can trust in God in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our shame because he is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And so if you are in Christ, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, if you are a son or a daughter of God, and we're family, our faithful older brother Jesus has done 
all that is necessary and is perfectly fitting to save us and to sanctify us, to make us acceptable to God, and is bringing us to glory. He did that. We don't do that. He did that. We cannot. Guys, get this. We cannot out-defile his ability to sanctify us. You get that? It means you cannot out him. You cannot. Because he has died perfectly, once for all, for all of your past, present, and future sin. Doesn't matter what you do, what you have done. It doesn't matter, right, what has been done to you. Does it matter the suffering and shame and disgrace that the world would heap on you? He does not do that because we are the family of God. And because we're the family of God, we are freed from all shame. If Jesus, who died for your past, present, and future sins, and who is restoring all that is broken, all of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the disgrace, if he is not ashamed to call you brother or call you sister, then why are you ashamed? He is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. No matter how much you messed up, there is nothing that you can do or nothing that can be done to you. No matter how big you blew it, no matter how tainted you feel because of what has been done to you, no matter the filth, no matter the misery, no matter the scars, he is not ashamed of you. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our salvation, is not, is not, never will be ashamed of you. He paid for that. He dealt with that. He has covered that. And friends, this passage, more than any other, has been the sustaining truth in my life over these last seven months. That because of Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, my brother, my friend, my foundation, there is purpose in my suffering and there is freedom from my shame. I don't need to be ashamed. It's the only reason why I'm here. Friends, I want you to know that too. There is freedom from all of your shame. And Jesus is not ashamed of you. He is not. He will never be. God the Father is not ashamed of you. You are his beloved child bought with the precious blood of his one and only son. And friends, if Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister... And what does that mean for us? Right? 
I mean, yes, at times we, we need admonishment. We need to, to rebuke or exhort with the word in order to help our, our brother or our sister not to neglect this great salvation, but never to shame, never to condemn, never to pass judgment on another or turn our faces away from them. Because if it is fitting that God is bringing them to glory and Jesus has founded their salvation, if they are being perfected through suffering and brokenness and yet Jesus has, is, and will completely sanctify them, if they are in God's family and Jesus is not ashamed to call them brother or sister, then what are you doing if your words or your thoughts or your actions are serving the opposite? Friends, we, our job is to sow the word. We let the word do the rebuking and do the exhorting. We let the Holy Spirit be the one that brings about conviction of sin. And when he does that, we rejoice that it is God who is the one who has granted us repentance. Friends, I pray, I pray earnestly that the book of Hebrews will change our conversation. It will change the way we talk to each other, the way we communicate with each other, the way we set our eyes, what we set them on, that it would transform us, that we would stop navel-gazing and lamenting over the fact that we happen to, from time to time, find some belly button lint. It's belly button lint. That we would stop thinking that our job as a church is to identify and compare and point out one another's belly button lint. Right? Uh, yours is bad. It's really bad. You don't know how bad. It's bad. Right? Guys, it's belly button lint. What do you do with belly button lint? Right? You see it, you dig it out, you fix your eyes on Jesus. If you see it in others, you don't shame them, you don't condemn them, right? You don't judge them for their belly button lint because Jesus has forever dealt with it. Praise the Lord, there will be no belly button lint in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? But here's why it concerns me so much, right? We'll never be conformed into the image of Christ if all we're doing is looking at belly button lint. Because Jesus is not belly button lint. Right? If we think our job as a church is to point out one another's sin, we're taking our eyes off of Jesus and we're putting it on sin. Right? That's not conformity to Christ. We are conformed to Christ by fixing our eyes on Him. When we gather together in community groups and life transformation groups, when we're talking to one another, man, we, we've got to know Christ and to help others to see Christ. We become what we behold. We're 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? We are transformed into the image of Christ as we behold your sin, as we behold the world, as we behold him. We become what we behold. We must behold his glory 
and trust in his word and rest in his perfect work. Let's keep that in mind and let's help one another to remember that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Because here's the thing. Here's what happens if we're taking our eyes off Jesus and we're focusing on the belly button lint. Shame. And when there's shame in the conversation, what's going to happen? If I go to you and I start pointing at your sin, what's going to happen the next time you have sin? going to cover that belly button, right? You're going to hide it because there's shame. But if we're focusing our eyes on Jesus, we can deal rightly with it. We can deal with it quickly. We can move on in hope because we know that we're not condemned any longer. There's no reason to be ashamed. So we could deal honestly. We could expose it into the light and we'll gladly do that because there's no shame because our our older brother has faithfully dealt with it. And so let us encourage one another to look to Jesus, the beginning and finisher, the beginner and finisher of our faith, because that's what Hebrews is going to be doing over and over and over again. Friends, this is why I thought it was so fitting to begin Hebrews and why I'm picking it up again. He has accomplished your salvation. He's not ashamed of you. He has welcomed you into his family. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And all of the trials that you are experiencing right now are preparing you for glory. You see, because of our superior foundation, there is purpose in suffering and freedom from shame. Let's pray. Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, I pray that these words would come to bear deeply in our hearts and souls and change us so that we would be able to trust you in the midst of whatever pain or hardship or sorrow or heartache that we are experiencing. And that we would be able to rest in our identity in Christ, freed from all shame, welcomed in as a true child of you. Lord, if there are those here that, that don't know you, that haven't placed their trust in Christ, I, I pray that this would draw and woo them. I pray that it would it would have served to help answer their questions, but that they would keep asking and seeking to find answers in your word and that we would be able to come alongside and help them and love them to experience freedom and purpose like they've never known before. Help us as a church to be able to encourage one another and build one another up in Christ. Help us to grow into his likeness and delight to know him and to make him known from sea to sea, knowing that you have called us and set us apart to proclaim from one generation to the next, everywhere we go, of the glory of Jesus to any and all who would listen. We pray this knowing that we are unworthy, knowing that we are broken, 
but that you are faithful and will complete the work that you have begun in the day of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.